Hello, and welcome to Galaxy Brains. Before we begin, please refer to the disclaimers of the link on the podcast and note that none of the information provided during this update constitutes investment advice or recommendation, solicitation, or offer by Galaxy Digital or its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. With that, let's get started. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. As always, I am your host, Alex Thorne, head of firmwide research at Galaxy Digital, and I am joined today by Christine Kim from Galaxy Digital Research and Bimnet Abibi and Rob Bogucki from Galaxy Digital Trading. Yeah, how you doing? Good morning. Good afternoon. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having us. We're doing Thanks it a little different us. this week. Um, we're not going to do our three big stories. There are plenty of big stories. We're going to cover those in our newsletter, which comes out this morning, Friday. Um, but um, we're going to talk about the macro uh, economic environment and the economy and the financial markets and also eventually what the impact is long term on the cryptocurrency economy because I very much believe um, and while there were some sort of endogenous factors that caused crypto to peak and come down I think mostly um, Bitcoin and Ether trading like a risk asset by large macro investors really are sort of riding down this bigger macro story um, so what is that story? And, you know, I'll just start by pointing out we've talked about it every week, but the Fed did this, you know, not surprised by the time they did it on Wednesday, that 75 basis point interest rate hike was expected, but it wasn't even expected as late as last week. Um, what happened? Uh, Bimnet, can you tell us what happened? Yeah. So um, the Fed, um, you know, did a, a small pivot um, and increased interest rates by 75 basis points. Um, and really what, what's striking to me is that the whole world changed from 8.30 o'clock on, on Friday to, to about 2 p.m. Um, and, you know, just, just to put it into context, you know, you had gone, there was a Fed that told you that inflation was transitory and then it wasn't transitory anymore. They're, they were going to go in 25-bip increments, and then they're going to go in 50-bip increments. So this is just in another long line of, you know, surprises by, by, by the Fed. Um, and so you had this remarkable beat in inflation on, on Friday. The Fed changes its tune, tells reporters that they're, li- and, and, you know, most likely banks as well, that they're going 75, and then they end up hiking 75 basis points on, on Wednesday. Um, and what they also did was they, they lowered their, their growth uh, forecasts for, for the next three years, and they also increased their, their unemployment forecasts. Um, now, what I found mo- most striking about it is that they only increased their um, unemployment forecasts over the long run to, to 4.1%. Now, when you're hiking interest rates by 75 bips at a time, 50 bips at a time, and when the market's implying a terminal rate of, you know, north of three and a half and the dots say, you know, 3.75, the idea that unemployment is not going to tick up meaningfully is, you know, in my head, you know, a little sort of counterfactual. Uh, but the, the Fed is really stuck in this sort of political bind, right? It has this dual mandate of employment and, and price stability. And what they're trying to do is, is reduce growth, cool the economy by raising front end interest rates and, you know, removing, um, you know, balance sheet purchases. And so, uh, you know, they're really in, in this spot where, like, they can't acknowledge that unemployment needs to go up by, by a right. lot, right? You can't. Have prices go down without consumer activity slowing and so on right. and so forth. Um, so fundamentally, what the Fed did was they reacted to data like they told you they would, 
um, and they gave out projections that you know don't I don't really believe are you know sort of feasible. I mean that projection of higher inflation continuing and thus we have to hike even more dramatically while the economy slows that is stagflation right that's what they're actually kind of telling us now we yes. already you know many have said this and it was and and even some predicted it certainly um but, but like but the question is cooling can, economy, can they right, get right? to that that sort of soft landing right or is it going to be you know material slowdown and growth consumer activity etc you know i'll tell you that there's real effects to to inflation right like gas prices being high that is a tax on consumers rents being high that's a tax on on consumers when their 401ks, their retirement accounts go down by, you know, 20, 25%, even the safest assets like investment grade credit, um, you know, regular treasury bills, when those things lose a lot in value, you're going to see a material slowdown in growth and you're likely going to see a recession. And that's why we've seen recession probabilities for 2023 really move, move up um, over, over the past couple of weeks. Crazy. Rob, welcome, Rob. Uh, you've been trading like rates and, and, and FX for a long time um, and you're a risk guy. I mean, you know, what a, how are how are markets and risk premiums and volatility, the stuff you work on day to day? But or, or if you want, we can continue I mean, on just the basics. But what are you what are you showing as indicators? What are the indicators telling you that you look at? You know, well, for example, things like bond volatility have increased dramatically. Um, you know, we've seen flashes in the pan and things like VIX, you know, that measure risk pr premium and equities, you know, spike up to 30, 35 and even 40 in the past. But this is the first time where you've seen like real material risk enter the fixed income markets. And what's going on out there right now, I think, is something that people really haven't had to deal with for quite a long time. Um, you know, the tectonic plates are shifting out there. Uh, people are going to have to think about the game differently. There's now, you know, legit two-way risk in bond markets and equity markets. And it's really just not that clear anymore. And when you think about the, the type of environment that we had for the last 10 years, particularly, and I'd like to focus on the demographic that, you know, we all, you know, fondly know as the baby boomers, for the last 10 years, the baby boomers have sort of been pushed away from your typical 60-40 portfolio allocation into uh, allocating capital in a way that, you know, to me is just traditionally backwards. A friend of mine that I used to work with said it best when he said, um, you know, when you hear everybody talking about equities in the context of dividend income, and people are talking about bonds in the context of price appreciation, it's backwards. Because people usually talk about equities in terms of price appreciation, and they talk about bonds in the context of fixed income. Well, you've had an entire decade of financial advisors walking baby boomers into a portfolio that is kind of backwards. And all of a sudden, reality has you know reared its ugly head, and people are just wrong way risk in the way that they're positioning and thinking about the markets. And that takes me to the second part, which is that that's going to require adjustments and painful adjustments at that. And those adjustments require liquidity. And in order to make these adjustments and make them in big size, you need liquidity. And the liquidity structure has changed materially in the market. You have high frequency traders that are now being dependent upon, dependent upon for liquidity provision. There's a lot of money out there that has to make adjustments. And the liquidity in, in today's market structure is, is just not what it used to be. And therefore, you're going to get 
big price dislocations. And I think, you know, we're in for a little bit of a shocking next couple of years in terms of the volatility and remarking of people's portfolios because of that. So you're talking about the death of the 60-40 portfolio, right, over the last you know decade or so, because rates were so low, there was no, nothing to be had with bonds. If you needed that, that yield or that appreciation, you had to go elsewhere. We saw endowments and pensions and institutional investors stray away from that for decades at this point, right? Venture as a portion of allocation is has been up huge um, seeking out alternative assets because of that sort of breakdown in that traditional correlation. So is, is the 60-40 portfolio going to be back? I think it's going to be back. Um, and, 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 and people are just, you know, wrong way risk facing it. And you bring up another good point that I'd like to talk about. And if I had to get one thing through in terms of what I'm watching very closely since since you asked, it's it's liquidity. Um, liquidity risk is the biggest risk out there that is, you know, non-shift F9 able, non-Bloombergable. There's no API to it. You think about how how, how how it's an art and not a science. You know, all of this quantitative investing and everything that's come about in the last 10 years likes to look at like hard numbers and like a data feed. There's no data feed for liquidity risk. It's just it's just a feel, right? And that liquidity risk out there is is usually more often than not what you know carries people out in a body bag when they when they misassess it, right? So I think the 60/40 portfolio is going to come back. Um, and that takes me to something that you also just mentioned, which is ventures slash private equity. If you look at the size of endowments and pensions and sovereign wealth funds, their allocation to private equity has grown astronomically in the last decade. I mean, ju just at you know my alma mater alone, which is Cornell University, their allocation to private equity I think is up you know sixfold or fivefold or whatever. I mean, that is typical for most you know university endowments now, like you know twenty-five to thirty-five percent in private equity. Well. You know, why did they go to private equity? That's where the yield was. That's where they got double di digit yields. Um, but there's a price to be paid for that. The price to be paid for that is it's a liquid. And so when people say you get a higher yield because you're taking more risk, it doesn't necessarily have to be credit risk. It doesn't have to necessarily be price risk. In this case, it's the mother of all risks, which is liquidity risk. So that liquidity risk is out there. And that's another thing that's going to have to be adjusted. These private equity portfolios at some point are going to have to be marked. And I think, you know, you're going to have some real big adjustments to what people thought was the the, the five-year or 10-year trailing rate of return. And I think that's a, a similar, there's a similar phenomenon in, in crypto um, sort of private equity as well, um, where there are a lot of things that, you know, haven't been marked uh, appropriately. And that causes, you know, folks to, to sell more, more liquid instruments like, like Bitcoin and, and ETH. Um, and just harping back on, on a point, you know, basically for, for the last 10 years, you know, the Fed has crucified the savings base, right? You got nothing in your savings account. What is a retiree to do when they get nothing in, in their bank account? They go further and further out the risk curve. They get nothing in U.S. bonds. They go further and further out the risk curve. Same thing with the endowments. And all of a sudden, the Fed is, you know, rug pulling every single, you know, uh, investor out there. Yeah, I mean, so, okay, let's step back a little bit, too, and talk about just like the, the length that we could be looking at of I've been getting very concerned about how long this could take to, to land one way or another, soft or hard, um, because we're asking the Fed to work on inflation. It's one of their mandates. They're always going to do that. Um, but, you know, I'm a believer that printing as much money and uh, 
and increasing the size of the balance sheet and debasing the currency at the monetary base level was a big factor here. But we know there are acute factors causing a lot of stuff, right? There's the shutdowns, the lockdowns from COVID that led to the supply chain stuff, which has not recovered. Port capacity has not recovered. Some saying it may never recover. That can't be true, but it could be years. Um, you've got the war in Ukraine putting pressure on energy and food prices. Um, there's there's mortgage rates, obviously, as a result of rising interest rates, but putting pressure on home buying, right? There's all these structural things that are not like at their core, I guess, mortgages aside, tied directly to monetary policy. And yet we're asking, uh, you know, the Fed to use this sledgehammer, blunt instrument to solve what really in, in many cases is is policy questions, right? I mean, you take the sanctions on Russia. I mean, pushing back on Russia, Russia I think most people agree is very justified, but Russia's making more money on oil today than ever before, right? It's not fundamentally working. It doesn't really pe- appear to be working on the ground in Ukraine, but it is wrecking energy markets. And it is, right, there are things that the administration could do, not just, you know, I don't, I'm not necessarily advocating for removing sanctions on Russia, but like a lot of this was extrinsic to the Fed, and yet we're asking them to use this blunt instrument, and the collateral damage is going to be significant. Yeah, you, you bring up an interesting point about the blunt instrument. There's two schools of thought there. I mean, some people think that what they're doing is, is, is the right thing because, and maybe it is initially because it's repriced the bond curve, which is effectively taken, you know, what we all know is the risk-free rate and moved it like almost instantaneously in this case, like, you know, two months to like three and a half percent. But I would like to see the Fed pivot at some point to unwinding the thing that caused all of this, which is, you know, the buying of of securities and putting them on the yeah. balance sheet. Um, I think, you know, you have that long end of the curve that I think needs to be adjusted, uh, you know, with what's been this shocker in the front end. And I think that the only way that they're really going to achieve that is, is, is by, you know, accelerating the unwind of their balance sheet. And that's something that I know is going to hit the mark to market of things like banks and people that have gone both out on the duration curve as, as Bimnet saying, but sorry, out on the risk curve as Bimnet saying, but also out on the duration curve. I think that pain has to be taken. This being said, I, I'm, I'm not, you know, super gloom about all this because I think that I think that they got to it quick enough and they've been reacting fast enough. I would like to see them pivot to unwinding the balance sheet. And if they do that, I think in 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 shorter order than people think we, we could return to like a normal environment. It's going to be painful. But I think what's going on right now is inherently healthy. I don't think it's going to be disastrous. But um you know, I, I, I do think things are, are adjusting. I mean, one fundamental that we have to go back to, which we've kind of gone away from, as I said before, in the last 10 years is, but sometimes when you see these things happen, it helps to go back to the basis, the basics. What is equity? Equity is value unencumbered by debt. Okay. And you know, these equities might have to reprice because when you own equity, you're owning, you know, that value above that which is encumbered by debt and having rates as low as they were we saw one of the biggest you know debt bonanzas ever okay eventually that piper has to get paid i think it can get paid in a way that you know you know you know not really soft lands but doesn't necessarily hard land but it has to be paid and i think it's going to get paid in the next year to two years and i think we should be okay um you know, but, but, but this was an eventuality and it just had to happen.
All right, let's talk a little bit about crypto uh, in this context. I think, Bimnet, you, you brought this up really well. I mean, on the liquidity risk point, I think that's very clear why we've been seeing, in many cases, on the moves down, Bitcoin and ETH actually perform worse than lower capped altcoins. But that's, I think, clearly a function of liquidity, right? You can't dump liquidity and, and positioning. You can't, dump, you can't even dump $10 million of like, you know, a, a decent or a Absolutely. popular alt L1 like AVAX without a lot of slippage. Absolutely. Um, but you can dump Bitcoin and ETH. No, um, it's also, you know, what people have, like where positioning is. You know, there's a lot more positioning in, in Bitcoin and ETH than than all of these alts. And, you know, there's a lot of distributed ownership in in less institutional ownership, you know, across alts and more institutional ownership in Bitcoin and ETH. And so, you know, when you have large risk assets, you know, correcting, you know, institutions are going to sell liquid yeah. assets and Bitcoin and ETH are, right. are liquid. And it's also, you know, uh, if you look at funding markets for um, a lot of the, the alts in, in the space, I mean, they're incredibly negative. You have to pay... 30% annualized to go sell something short, right? That means you expect, a, you know, in, in the future, you know, one year forward, that the price will be 30% lower already. Um, yeah. And you're willing to sacrifice, you know, the, the upside. So, you know, I think you're, you're in a world where, where liquidity, you know, comes at a, at a premium, yeah. um, whether it's when you're buying or selling. Um, and, you know, one of the things, you know, Rob points out a lot is, you know, the, the amount of liquidity provisioning that, that exists for the outsized positions there are in the market, you know, does not equate. Um, and so, you know, I do think there's a meaningful risk that, that Bitcoin does take out, you know, 20,000 in a meaningful way. ETH takes out 1,000 in a meaningful way um, as a function of, you know, broader risk markets sort of making that move lower. Yeah, um, I don't want to not that we can't, but I, I, I don't want to make the content of this podcast solely focused on price, but I do think we're probably all in agreement. It can go lower. Um, I, I, I said, you know, I, you know, it's just like pure, um, it's, it's sort of like, it's like time. I've, when you have an asset that's been going up for a long time and, yeah. and you start coming down, I literally think of it like going back in time. Right. And it feels like we could easily get back to like 2018 levels on Bitcoin. I hope that's wrong because that's in like the, you know, the three to eight K zone. I don't think that's possible, but I could be wrong. I mean, I, I really yeah. think it's we it's never Bitcoin has never existed, let alone any of the others um, in an environment uh, like this or even a true prolonged recession, which many think is coming, let alone a tightening one. In fact, when people said, I think uh, Rob has said this too really well. Um, Everyone's like, oh, I thought Bitcoin was digital gold. Why isn't inflation high? Why is it performing badly? Well, I think if you actually listened to most of the digital gold theorists for Bitcoin, um, it was a hedge against monetary policy, right? And debasement of currency. And it did skyrocket just as the monetary printer was turned on at record levels. And it did start coming down as soon as the Fed starts pivoting to tightening. And in that case, as an instrument, as, as Mike Novogratz calls it, a report card on central bank monetary policy, it's actually performing pretty well because they are tightening at a record rate, right? They are hardening the money at a record rate. Um, so, I, you know, I just, but I do worry. I worry that, um, you know, this cycle, you have institutions involved, you know, in 2017, it was, you know, almost exclusively really a small number of retail people in the yeah. scheme of things that, you know, how wrecked, is the crypto industry if you know we keep coming i don't know we go a lot further i mean it you know like how 
how off hands are these? You tell me, Rob. I mean, we're at an interesting juncture because, again, like, um, uh, yeah, we're raising rates. And, like, look, I've said this before on a podcast that took place, like, about a year ago. The interesting thing about crypto is it's still very much in its nascency, right? Um, the market cap is, like, what now? Like, just under a trillion or something like that or whatever. That is just small in the grand scheme of total market caps of other markets out there. Now, the reason why I think we're in a very interesting space is because I always can, I mean, I'm an options trader, so I always think of these things, especially at their stage of development right now, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum, as kind of options. And I always say like, it's like an option struck at zero with no expiration date. Now, if you were to go, go three to four months ago, you'd say, okay, you've got a probability spectrum of, you know, you know, somewhere between $10,000 and a million dollars for the valuation of, of, of Bitcoin and beyond. Okay, fine. And then there was a very, very small possibility it could go to zero. The possibility of it going to zero probably has increased with what's going on right now, but it's still a very, very small percentage. Maybe it was zero four months ago. Maybe now it's 5% now. But the interesting thing that I think about the space right now, and you're probably right, it could go to 15,000 or 10,000 or something like that. But then you're going to be at this interesting juncture where it's, a, it's almost an easy bet to take that's, that says, okay, there's a small possibility it goes to zero, and then there's another possibility it's worth something between 10000 and a million dollars. And at that point, I think it's a very interesting proposition for portfolios, particularly pensions, endowments, family offices, sovereign wealth funds, and whatnot, because it is that perpetual option struck at zero with no expiration date that has what I like to call right-way asymmetric risk. I say this all the time, but right-way asymmetric risk has disappeared from people's portfolios. If you just bought equities on a four or 5% dip, you were always rewarded. It was right way asymmetric risk. If you just surfed the bond curve down into the zero peg at, at, at the central banks, that was your right way asymmetric risk. You could do your relative value bond trade, your cash for futures and all this other stuff, and it produced some ridiculous, never seen before in the universe, artificial sharp ratio of like four or five, that's gone. So. Enter two-way risk to bonds, enter two-way risk to equities, even enter two-way risk to things like real estate, and suddenly people managing huge swaths of money are like, oh my gosh, I need to get some right-way asymmetric risk into the portfolio. You can do that with a two or three or four or 5% allocation to something like Bitcoin, and I, it, 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 it really gives you like a good replacement to that because once you get down to something like 15,000 or 10,000, it's either a zero or some really high astronomical number. That is the definition of right way asymmetric risk. And usually you have a time limit on it. Usually you have to pay dearly for it. You, 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 you don't in this case. And so I think that's an interesting proposition for crypto as it gets to this very, very critical crossroads. And I think one thing that people are really watching for to be able to evaluate when is that time I should enter, when is the ideal time to capitalize on that asymmetric risk, people are looking at minor flows. Like when is the yep. sell pressure from miners like completely uh, fulfilled? And I think yesterday we saw, or on Tuesday um, this week, we saw the all-time like highest amount of flows from miners to exchanges um, and this some people some on-chain analysts have been talking about perhaps this is you know some relief coming the to capitulation to event yeah yeah i think miners is an interesting one um you know i don't know exactly how much bitcoin they hold but let's call it a really only like 100k bitcoin maybe um 
but or, but more probably more but um we also confirm that i mean public statements from there's all these public miners right and they've, they've said they're selling a lot of them have um I, are, do, do we think there's other what other entities are we sitting waiting for shoes to drop i mean obviously we've seen some lending companies and some funds already have to unwind or liquidate um who else is out there i, like, I think it's ma and pa retail yeah that, that's really out there um and you know with the effects of inflation with the compounded wealth effects of you know all asset markets um i do think that over time you are going to start to see you know retail folks exiting you know some of the the crypto holdings they have i mean if you have to you know pay 200 dollars a week in gas or you're paying an extra 50 every day in groceries or commuting etc you know after three months those add up and you know we're seeing things like you know credit card balances you know tick up um, you know, delinquency rates pick up like auto loan rates, you know, you know right. delinquencies, you know, pick up. So the U.S. consumer is, is really feeling the pinch. And once they start sort of capitulating on, on some of their crypto holdings, I think that would sort of signal that, that you're close to a bottom. But back to Rob's point, you know, the real key thing that I'm looking for in, in risk markets and in crypto, et cetera, is sort of a pivot from the Fed and or the other central bankers, um, you know, in, in the de developed economies, right? You know, if we we really do think that you know bitcoin is, is a scorecard for you know fed credibility or, or monetary right. policy credibility once that credibility starts to fade is when i think you will get yeah. you know that that next leg higher in, in crypto and you're already seeing signs of that um right you've had um you know sort of the the nature of, of powell's press conference um yesterday and the, the the nature of like the fact that they couldn't upgrade unemployment higher than than 4.1 right like there is you know massive social unrest if there's too much pain in the economy yeah. recessions are incredibly politically unpopular right right like in europe you know you're, you're pricing in a lot of tightening of you know financial conditions rates etc but you know what do you think happens you know when when people start losing jobs like, like crazy they go to the streets they protest right, right. the the these central bankers are more political than ever. So ultimately, I do think you're going to go back to the era of, of easy money because that's the most politically convenient thing. Yeah. Right. Particularly in the face of, you know, recession, job layoffs, right. High inflation, people feeling things at, at the pump. And so, um, you know, I, I and then you know, there's the other context of, you know, fundamental things actually happening in crypto right now we from the lenders and the hedge funds that are leaving crypto you can see that DeFi activity a lot of it was driven by a handful of entities and, and that's declined a lot nft activity like you're looking at open sea volumes that's declined you know a lot as well the need for you know other chains cross-chain bridging to do DeFi and, and nft activity on-chain gaming there isn't really a dominant on-chain you know gaming platform right. out there as well so the narrative has really faded and I think you just need time for, you know, more developed institutions to realize, you know, the power of crypto, more use use cases, you know, re, whether it's real estate for NFTs or, you know, NBA, Topshop, et cetera, more of those sort of natural use cases to build up over time. So I'm looking for, you know, fundamental use cases and fundamental activities start picking up and also for a central bank pivot um, to, for, you know, Got it. to really signal a crypto. Yeah, bond. the builders, the builders have to have to build, right? That's what's like, we're in that period. And even though I'm, I'm not the moderator, I have a question and I'll direct it to Christine. Um, what I think people really want to know that are taking risk and, and potentially allocating to crypto is 
you've got two interesting stories here. You've got the Bitcoin proposition. We know what that is. That's call it digital gold. Call it just a fix, um, fixed amount of stuff that people are familiar with and can allocate to that is basically a proxy to bet against monetary debasement. So we've got that off on one side. Then on the other side, we have Ethereum. And I'd like to hear from you about Ethereum and what is like, because now that you've got this low price and you've got this activity going on in the market and this paradigm shift, now people really want to assess that probability of going to zero. I personally think that the technological merits of Ethereum are like tremendous. And I actually think it's part of what's driving down some of like the bigger tech stock names because those names have always had a hammer lock on their industries and the Ethereum network provides an opportunity for people to come in and compete with those names, which is why some of those names may never go back to their all time highs. Um, so now when you're pricing an option and you sit there and you say like, wow, it's really cheap. Let's say Ethereum's at $750 or $800. I don't know, just to say, you're like, okay, zero's not that, you know, zero's right there. So now I'm just a, a, a hair above zero. Now I really want to assess that zero possibility. What's the possibility of Ethereum just going away? I, I think it's very low, but you're the expert. I mean, that calculation is going to be critical to how, how people you know, place opportunistic bets, I think, in the next month or two months. Yeah, I don't have a clear-cut answer to that. I think Ethereum's ultimate value proposition is achieving um, and perpetuating and growing and adopting the decentralized web. And that includes such a vast, so many industries, from gaming to um, digital arts to um, social networks, um, it includes so many applications. It, it, it changes the way that people potentially could interact with one another, um, communicate with one another, share value with one another. And in some ways, it builds upon what Bitcoin currently does by allowing more programmability into the feature of creating tokens and creating um, wealth. One of the concerns that I have around what's been going on over the last couple of weeks is the retail investors that have been burned by like poor yield structures and poor um, unsustainable models for creating loans, for creating um, finance applications. And I think one of the waking, like one of the things that I think is really positive about what's happened is that hopefully this will set the stage for more robust and resilient decentralized applications on Ethereum moving forward. And we've seen that many DeFi applications have responded positively to, to market downturns in the past, MakerDAO being one of them from Black Thursday, one of the reasons why they um, diversified the collateral types of their lending application is because they realized that during market downturns, ETH is an extremely volatile asset. Um, and I think we've been seeing a lot more stability in MakerDAO through this downturn. Um, so again, I feel like as much as, as much as there's been quite a lot of turnover in the market and a lot of retail investors getting washed out, um, I'm very hopeful that this will set the stage for, for more resilient structures moving but, but ahead. But what I hope it also sets the stage for is, and I, and I feel very strongly about this, I, uh, you know, there, there was a Wall Street Journal article recently that you know, talked about how I started putting bearish bets into, you know, on crypto uh, following the Bitcoin Miami conference. Look, the one thing that I have felt, and Alex started this uh, podcast by, by uh, 
dating me in terms of like how long I've been in these markets. I'm going to turn 50 in July. It's like really hard to believe, but, 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 but I mean, it's shocking, but, but, um, you know, I, I always got very concerned about the population that, you know, participates in crypto and, uh, you know, not really the attitude, but just sort of like the lack of factoring in of, you know, real risk in this market. Um, it, it was a one-way train for the last, you know, couple of years, albeit volatile. Um, when you say Ethereum's really volatile down here, you're absolutely right. But if you look at how volatile option premiums are, you know, you, you, you can't look at something that I still maintain as like that option struck at zero with no expiration date and thereby the investment itself being an option and, and, and not expect some really extreme volatility. So for people to A, invest in, in something like this and not think it's going to be really whippy and volatile, I think it's just chalked up to a lack of experience and a lack of respect for risk. And, and, and that's a hard lesson to be taught. But I also think what good is going to come out of this is people that are regular investors in crypto, they're not going to go away, but they're, they're being taught a lesson about respecting that volatility and that risk premium. And, 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 and that also ties into what you said about these yielding platforms. Again, this sounds like an old guy thing to say, but you know, when, when, when rates are 50 basis points, a half a percent, you know, you don't get 10% or 15% or 8% or sorry, 18% by either having the right phone number or having the right app. I say to the private equity people, did you really think you got 20 times the risk-free rate for knowing like the right guy at some private equity firm that just let you right. in? And do you think you really get 20 to 25 times the risk-free rate for having the right app? I mean, you know, I'm sorry, like you're taking risk and this is teaching that lesson. But that said, on Ethereum in particular, I really do think that it provides the gateway, the flattening of the barrier to entry and the flattening of the playing field for um, really good ideas to find their way out into this, this world that's you know, irrevocably global now. People say deglobalization, not as far as information and interaction. Maybe as far as like goods on boats going across oceans and stuff like that, but fine. But Global, the world is globalized and the best ideas are going to succeed with the te technological merits of blockchain and in particular, like, you know, Ethereum. So I still think it's in that same category of like, you know, option premium and people really need to take a hard look at it because it's very asymmetric right now. This has been an awesome conversation. Before we wrap, I wanted to, because this was basically Galaxy Brain's bear market edition. Uh, I want <laughs> to go around to each of you and ask what you are what you're seeing is very positive in the digital assets market, what you're excited about, something that you're excited about. Um, I'll start with you, Bimnet. Oh, man, it's going to be tough to find. Uh, <laughs> honestly, uh, this is the bear edition. There's, there's very few things that, that I'm excited about in crypto. I mean, this is really where the rubber meets the road for, for a lot of, of, of things. Um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty bearish on, on stocks still. Um, you know, I think bonds could potentially sell off more like there's there's a lot more pain to be had before I'm remotely sort of constructive on on on, on crypto um so I'm gonna pass on that <laughs> oh no just setting it off really dark wow let me bring back some hope to the conversation Please, Christine, land this, um, give us a soft landing here I think we talked about this a little bit in the podcast, but when it's a bear market, builders build. And I am very hopeful about the infrastructure that's going to be built during this potentially multi-year uh, bear market, this this 
period of economic downturn um, to build like stronger structures for the decentralized web. Um, and I think we've seen a lot of more risky, unsustainable models being washed out. And I think uh, we're also seeing, you know, really some star star players um, in the DeFi space and just like general decentralized application space shine through this time. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot more of those of those applications um, continue to be developed and um, hopefully bring back a lot of those retail investors that were washed out to try to try participating again in this in this ecosystem. You know, not not to steal your your thunder at all, but uh, you know, I really think back to 2008 and 2009, um, and you know, Rob, you know, probably has better context for this, um, but I really do think it took a long time for the stock culture. Um, to come back in the States. You know, once people get burned, once people lose 80, 85% on, on an asset, uh, once people lose 100% uh, of an asset that they thought was a stable value, right? Like, you know, like th it takes a really long time for, for folks to get back into that asset. So I, I think that you're in for, you know, sort of a, a pause in, in retail adoption. Um, but I, I do agree with you. I, I do think that the remaining platforms highlight, you know, the best use cases for, for crypto and how, you know, the, the path forward can look. Um, but right now, I, I think it's going to take a really long time for, for, for retail to, to join the, the crypto fray again. Uh, I'll, I'll add an element of positivity here because uh, I, 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 really, I, I really am positive. I think, first of all, in the traditional financial space, I don't think it's going to be as... People don't, you know, psychologically deal well with massive adjustment, and this is a massive adjustment. But in a year's time, we will have adjusted to this. We will adjust to three and a half, four, four and a half, maybe even five percent rates. I also think there's a lot of other mechanisms out there that are going to quote unquote check inflation. Rising oil, like Binnet was talking about, it changes how people spend. You know, um, you see these big retail store inventories building up. Well, that's because you know they kind of overordered, thinking that everything post COVID was going to stay forever. Um, oil is going to tax people. Um, food inflation is going to tax people. Things are going to moderate and things are going to go back to what I would call normal. And I think that's going to happen, you know, in a year's time and, 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 and we're going to be fine. As far as crypto goes, I really do think, I mean, I was asked a sidewinder question at a panel I was at a couple of weeks ago. You know, what are the socially redeeming? This is just another gambling market. There's no socially redeeming qualities. Oh, I beg to differ. It's like saying in Internet 1.0. Oh, there was no socially redeeming qualities to some of these dot-com stocks. Absolutely right. 97, you know, out of 100 stocks like went to zero and they should have. And there's 10,000 some odd, you know, SHIT coins out there that should probably go to zero and they needed a catalyst so that the real stuff, as Christine's saying, the real building, the real developing can continue. You know, you saw the, 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 the these platforms in Internet 1.0, um, you know, when we know what they are, you know, change the way people shop, change the, pe the way people can be efficient about their lives and days and order stuff, everything from paper towels to whatever it is you need and so on and so forth. That's going to happen as a result of this, you know, technological globalized revolution that we're having here in, 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 in crypto. And I think it's something that's going to change the world forever and it's not going to go away. And therefore, it's a very opportune time to evaluate you know, when to allocate to it. And, you know, I, I just think you're right, 
BIMNET, it takes a little while for people to kind of come back. But boy, oh boy, some of the stocks that are in my portfolio today were purchased in 09 and 10 when I just had to close my eyes and look at the actual valuations and the merits of, of, of the proposition and, and, and just, you know, close your eyes, buy it in, in, in responsible measure and just kind of walk away and, 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 and let it just sort of play out. And I think that crypto is going to have that opportunity. Anytime you have a, rev, a, a technological revolution or any kind of revolution, you're always going to have the charlatans show up. And you've got a lot of these coins out there that are just charlatan-like and they have to go away. So inherently, I think this is a very healthy thing that this is going to flush those out and leave the real things that have those technological merits that are just not going to go away. Yeah, we've seen that in prior cycles. I think there was Coin market cap was tracking 1,500 coins on December 31st, 2017. Today, it tracks almost 20,000. Um, so, you know, I agree. I hope of, I hope I hope the industry, and I think it will, not only coalesce around projects that have sort of fundamental value and use in futures, but also that um, particularly the non-Bitcoin projects learn more why the Bitcoin community was so focused on decentralization. Um, rather than sort of short-term features. I think there's been a lot of hard lessons already taught on that too. And I, and I think that will, I, I'm hoping, I think, but I'm also hoping um, that that's one of the lessons that the builders of this cycle um, really focus on is, you know, cutting to that core value of decentralization. All right, that is it today. Thank you, uh, Rob Bogucki, Bimnetta BB, and Christine Kim for joining Galaxy Brains. Um, and everyone have a happy and safe weekend. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, a weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. If you enjoyed this show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to learn more about Galaxy Digital Research and what we work on, check us out on Twitter at GLXY Research and read our reports at galaxydigital.io research. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you next time.